welcome to another digital engagement podcast brought to you by LivePerson. Through its Live Engage cloud-based platform, LivePerson creates meaningful, real-time customer connections that increase conversions and improve customer experience. I'm your host, Patrick Spencer, Senior Director and Editor-in-Chief at LivePerson. I recently had a chance to catch up with Jeff Roars, the Vice President of Marketing Insights at ExactTarget, a Salesforce.com company, to talk about audiences and digital engagement. Jeff is the author of Audience and the co-author of Subscribers, Followers, and Fans Research Series. Well, Jeff, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. Well, you have a very interesting background for those listening to the podcast who aren't familiar with some of the things that you've, you've done in your book, uh, the, the book Audience. Talk a bit about your, your role, uh, where, where you're at as exact target today, and, and uh, what, what you do. Sure. So I serve as uh, Vice President of Marketing Insights for the Salesforce Exact Target Marketing Cloud, and in that capacity, I uh, write and speak around the globe around marketing issues, usually at a kind of 30,000-foot level trying to look around corners of what's coming or get marketers to look at things that may have been right in front of their faces where there's you know, additional uh, ROI or opportunity or chances to build deeper relationships with customers. So. I also built the content marketing team uh, at uh, Exact Target prior to the acquisition by Salesforce and have co-created and co-authored our Subscribers, Fans, and Followers uh, research series, which uh, is the longest-running research series looking at the changing relationship between uh, brands and consumers uh, as those relationships are defined through email, mobile, and social channels hence the name Subscribers, Fans, and Followers. And that research is what really gave rise to my book, Audience, Marketing in the Age of Subscribers, Fans, and Followers, and uh, its thesis that uh, marketing uh, now has a new responsibility, and that is proprietary audience development, the responsibility to constantly be not only growing the size of your direct audiences, but increasing their engagement and ultimately increasing their value. And it's been exciting over the course of the last nine months since the book came out to get to travel the globe and preach that gospel on uh, numerous continents and to uh, folks who speak different languages and see that it resonates with marketers uh, across the world. So uh, I think I'm on to something, which is a good deal. Yeah, it's been very well received, and there's a lot of marketers out there who have found the, the book to be quite helpful. Uh, you bring up an interesting point. How do you measure audience engagement at the end of the day? Well, there, there are a number of ways. I like to think of size, engagement, and value as being inextricably linked when it comes to audience growth. So you hear a lot of folks wanting to grow their audience, get a bigger audience, and they usually are just talking about the size component, which is numerical, right, <clears throat> at least mm-hmm. on the surface. And it's great if you visually have a big number of followers or a big number of fans But uh, as we all know, the number of followers, fans, email subscribers is is one metric. There then is this different metric of who's actually engaged. And so as we're recording this, I'm coming from our Connections user conference just closing in Indianapolis where I got to see the author, uh, John Green, speak. And for those who aren't familiar with John, he's the one who wrote The Fault in Our Stars. But he also has made his name in video blogging. He and his brother Hank have a, a blog called Vlog Brothers and started as a project a number of years ago just to communicate via video posts to, uh, to YouTube. 
And it since has morphed into this amazing uh, community of YouTube subscribers that they call themselves nerd fighters, meaning that they fight mm. for nerds and they fight for intellectualism. And um, what's interesting there is they have got, as we're recording this, 2,327,000 subscribers <laughs> on YouTube. But of that, the engaged number when they go into their metrics is really more of about 250,000 will regularly be viewing their videos. And mm -hmm. so that's one way to measure it, right? In the different channels, who's actually seeing your message in YouTube, who's watching it, in Twitter, who has read it, who has forwarded it, who has now you know, favorited it, who has retweeted it. In Facebook, we all know that you know, organic is uh, a shrinking opportunity, but you still have this great opportunity to look at you know, who is regularly engaging and, and liking and commenting. So it depends, you know, come back to the question of how do you measure engagement, it depends on the channel. So if we look at email, I want to see opens. That's kind of a, it, it is not a, a perfect measurement just because how it's measured, but it's, an, it, it's almost like your canary in the coal mine. Is my message getting through? But then really what I want to see is clicks and I want to see actual uh, conversions on whatever content I'm selling, whether or sending, whether I'm trying to sell something and they're purchasing or whether I'm linking to a video and I want them to watch it. So each channel has these deeper metrics. And so don't just focus on the size of your audience. Look to how many folks are engaged and you want to be growing that as well. If you don't keep your eye on that, you may just have a paper tiger. You may have a million people who are subscribers, but if you have zero engagement, you're not going to be able to sell or you're not going to be able to build a community or have any sort of relationship with those individuals. That makes a lot of sense. So that sort of leads into the next question, the importance of audience segmentation, figuring out who your audience is, because you could have, as you just said, 3 million and 600,000, et cetera, folks who are visiting your site, but there's only a segment of those who are engaged, and maybe there's even segments of those segments that uh, you would be interested in uh, working with. And then they are coming at you from different communities at the same time, so sure. they're not you know, Twitter might be one, LinkedIn might be another, YouTube might be another, your website be another, etc. No, absolutely. I look at this in two ways because when you hear audience segmentation, the marketer's mind naturally goes to advertising because that's where we talk about segmentation most often because we do not want to buy or rent, which is really what you're doing. You're renting attention via some sort of third-party media. Let's use television as an example, right? I am going to rent 30 seconds of attention during a program, and I don't want to buy a program that isn't going to hit the type of personas, the type of potential customers that are you know, not interested in my products. I want the people who are going to be interested. So mm -hmm. you have got those third-party media folks providing deep and rich audience analytics through services like Nielsen, and then you purchase your advertising, your mass media advertising, based on uh, what that audience is. Now, you can then, thanks to digital advertising, right, we can get into even deeper segmentation. You take something like Facebook, they have probably the richest and, and deepest forms of segmentation. I can, I can get age, I can get gender, I can get geography, I can get interests, I can find people in Iceland who like cold play, I can uh, find people in Brazil who like hot, hot heat demand. So mm -hmm. you, you can really target. Now that's paid advertising, which is you know, it makes the world go round. 
What I talk about in audience, though, are these proprietary audiences, the direct audiences that you build uh, that nobody else has access to, where your company is almost like a media company. You are creating content but building direct audiences. And instead of like third-party media companies who rent that attention, you're using that attention for yourself. So when you're thinking about segmentation with those audiences, again, the segmentation depends on the channel. So if you look at email, aspirationally, you should be looking to market to a segment of one over time. That's the purity, that's the vision of one-to-one -one marketing, is that that mm -hmm. channel allows me as I aggregate data and, per and permission from that individual to begin to use that data to customize content and deliver an experience uh, that is unique to their customer journey. So I, am, uh, I refer to myself as a Cleveland Browns victim. I do not want to see Baltimore <laughs> Ravens gear in any sort of advertisement or email from uh, a company uh, that maybe sells sports equipment, let's say like Dick's. And so over time, you would hope that Dick's Sporting Goods customizes that based on a knowledge of you know, what kind of fan I am, my geography, my purchase behavior, and that's where the segmentation of one in the form of your proprietary audiences can take hold. However, you also have these audiences where that kind of segmentation might be a little bit more limited. Some of the newer channels, you still might be in a kind of a mass broadcast standpoint, even in proprietary audiences, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of the newer, newer social channels. And then you have this other interesting hybrid that has come about. And it's best represented by the custom audience product from Facebook. So for those who aren't familiar with this, Facebook will map your email subscribers against your Facebook fans and come up with a segment, segmented, uh, essentially, audience for you of people who are fans and email subscribers, people who are just Facebook fans, and people who are, they are, they have the same demographic makeup as your mm -hmm. fans and email subscribers. So they aren't email subscribers or fans, but they could be because they look an awful lot like the people who already subscribe or like you in those, those two channels. Now what intrigues me about this, it's the first time where a proprietary audience, your email subscribers, can be used to improve the segmentation and targeting and therefore response of a paid advertising medium. So mm -hmm. I want to advertise to the people who are fans of mine, but they are not my email subscribers. And what I want to do with that first advertisement is try and get them to become email subscribers. And the reason mm -hmm. is, is that I can now be multi-channel and hopefully cross-channel with them over time. And email allows me to dictate kind of the pace, uh, the frequency, the content of my messages and ensure that it gets into the inbox far better than Facebook organic posts do. And that demographic profiling is also quite interesting because now I can really reach out further and, and have precision paid advertising on the back of this proprietary audience that I built. And so I, I, we're, in, we're entering a really interesting, interesting era of hyper-segmentation. And you know, I, wrote a, I wrote a post uh, uh, last year uh, about the 20th anniversary of Peppers and Rogers' book, The One-to-One -One Future. It came out in 93. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just fascinating to me because I, I remember reading that book and it was, it was really you know, mind-changing for a lot of marketers. And here we are you know, 21 years later and we're sitting in the one-to-one -one present.
we can now do many of these things that they were talking about in that book. That makes a lot of sense. And there's a just as there's a breakdown in the walls separating your different communities, there's really a breakdown between the communities represented by your prospects versus your customers. They're sort of all getting mixed together. And the, yeah. as Andrew Davis talked about at Content Marketing World, that sequential linear journey is no longer necessarily true because of all the technologies and devices and resources that are available to, uh, to consumers and, and even B2B companies online today. Absolutely. The, you know, the traditional funnel where the prospect goes from step one to step two, step three, step four, that still exists in certain industries and in certain pockets, right? Some people are going to be very linear. But what we, we talk about, what Andrew talks about is the opportunity to be completely nonlinear is more present than ever uh, thanks to the proliferation of devices, uh, the proliferation of channels, and the pro proliferation of social influence on the purchase cycle. And uh, nothing exemplifies that better, I use this in, in my presentation, than a restaurant that's not, uh, not a mile away from me here in Lakewood, Ohio, where I live, called uh, Melt Bar and Grilled. And Melt Bar and Grilled, uh, as you might gather from the name, uh, sells uh, gourmet grilled cheese sandwiches, big as your head. Uh, mm -hmm. And they have fabulous names like... Uh, you know, the Godfather, which is like a lasagna grilled cheese sandwich, or the uh, Parmageddon, uh, which is two pierogies with cheese and onions on Texas toast. So these fabulous sandwiches. So fabulous that they really created, you know, quite the social stir when they, they started like six or seven years ago. And, you know, word of mouth spread, and there was always a line around the block. And, um, you know, really great place. And the owner, uh, you know, started the email, started Facebook, you know, discovered Facebook and email were great at, you know, driving sales, email especially. But Facebook created this whole community around the brand that allowed them to expand from one to two to three to now I think six locations. But the story that I share that, that, that really demonstrates how the funnel has completely just disassembled before our eyes is that Matt started a program called the Tattoo Family. And it was inspired by the band Rocket from the Crypt, of which he was a fan. And Rocket from the Crypt, if you've got a tattoo of the band logo, they let you into their shows for free for life. And so Matt can't give away the food for free, but he said, you know what, if you get a tattoo of the Melt logo and a grilled cheese sandwich, we'll give you 25% off of food and alcohol for life. We thought, you know, a couple people a year would do this and it would be a good PR stunt. Well, when I interviewed him for the book last summer, the 500th person had gotten that tattoo, and I think now he's closing it on 600 people. Uh, not, you know, gosh, nine months later or so. But one young man came into his location here in Lakewood, the original, and was very, very excited to show him his tattoo. And Matt looked at the tattoo and said, wow, that's great tat. Where'd you get it? And his next question was, you know, when was the first time that you ate at Melt's? And this kid said, oh, I've never eaten at Melt's. And, and Matt was kind of taken aback. <laughs> He's like, you've got a tattoo of my, you know, store and, and and the grilled cheese sandwich on you. And he goes, yeah, well, I, I went to college at Ohio State, or should I say the Ohio State University, registered trademark, and I had a lot of friends from Lakewood, and they would come up here on breaks, and they'd, you know, they'd eat here, and they'd post pictures to Facebook and Instagram, and it looked so good, and I knew I was coming up here to visit them, so I got the tattoo for the discount. And that thought, wow, that's really one of the more expensive uh, coupons uh, anybody's ever gotten for a first trial. But he asked him the, the, the logical follow-up. He goes, well, what if you didn't like the food? 
And the guy looks at him without missing a beat and says, dude, there is no way I don't like the food. So you have in that one example a young man who went from the awareness phase, right, and the awareness of melt was created by social interactions with his friends in Facebook and Instagram. And he went from that awareness phase. He, he completely skipped, skipped the whole process. He skipped yeah. purchase. He skipped retention and loyalty. And he went to advocacy. He got a tattoo that, you know, advertised it. And it was a conversation point with friends before he'd ever tasted the product. And that's the crazy world we live in, that customers can taste the virtual grilled cheese now before they've ever actually tasted the real thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's an exciting time. It's a frightening time. Uh, it, it bears a lot of responsibility for brands. And I like to think of it as we specialize in, in, in you know, really nurturing the customer journey. That's what you know, the Salesforce Exact Target Marketing Cloud is all about. But I break it down into moments that matter because when the funnel is completely decimated, there are still these moments. And you as a brand have got to look at that full path that the customer can travel, as tangential and as out of order as it might be. And you have to start looking and prioritizing the moments that matter and make sure that you're getting them right. And once you get one right, move on to the next one. And some of them are known moments that you, you know, they're right in front of your face. Some of them are hidden moments that are under the surface in your business and you hadn't thought of before, but now because of technology and mobility, connectivity and data and social, you can now take, get more value out of them. And some of them are you know, creating completely new moments. And there's a lot of opportunity there, um, you know, thanks again to mobility, mobile apps, wearables, things like that. Well, as you just described, there's a plethora of great, and that's a great analogy, but there's a plethora of great examples of those in the marketplace who have gone out and figured out what some of those moments that matter might look like or moments of inspiration, as Andrew talked about at Content Marketing World. And that's really critical not only to building and attracting or attracting and building new audiences, but also to keeping them engaged uh, in existing communities. You know, how do you go about figuring out this whole process? Is it, it's, it's easier said than done. Oh, absolutely. I, that's the great thing about being an author, right? You can, you can raise the issue. You can say this is a priority, and, and then uh, the hard work belongs to the people who read the book and, and, and work within their brand. Because the funnel is so disassembled, nonlinear, you do need to focus first and foremost on things that impact the sales process and create efficiency and opportunity there. The first job of any marketer is clearly make the sale. And I'm always mm-hmm. surprised when I see marketing presentations that kind of don't even assume that. They're, they're, they're actually jumping ahead to just you know, engagement and community building. And it's like you don't build communities for your health. You know, call that. ultimately, right, as brands, you build communities to sell. And you've got, to, you've got to get that right. You've got to make sure the bills are paid. And so, you know, I, I, I highly recommend, you know, an audit process where you walk through your business, the physical and the virtual parts of it, in the shoes of a customer. And you do that to look at a few different types of journeys, uh, male, female, uh, you know, different ages, different geographies, online, offline, mobile, you, you go through these things and you, you begin to look at where the friction points are 
and try and eliminate those friction points to create you know, better, more streamlined sales processes that increase conversion and therefore profit. And you also look then for, I think, a couple of other things. Because the sale is job number one, but today because every consumer has got some sort of mobile device in hand, right? So, you know, cellular telephone service is nearly ubiquitous in the United States. About 60 to 70% of people now have smartphones. Smartphones worldwide are going to double to 5 billion smartphones by 2017. We can make some assumptions, and that is that every bit of marketing, every interaction we have is now a direct piece of marketing because of that device in their hand, if only we ask them to do something additional. So let's say we've got you know, a customer in the store and their signage. That signage can be used to sell. It also could be used to do some audience building. A uh, good example mm-hmm. is Nordstrom's. Nordstrom's has started putting tags on uh, products in their um, show windows and in their high traffic areas in stores that say popular on Pinterest, if it is in fact an, op, uh, a, a, uh, an item that is popular on Pinterest. That simple little act costs barely anything, but what it does is it increases sales because it taps that part of our brain that says, hey, I want to be popular. I want to buy things that other people like. Oh, this is popular on Pinterest. That's a validating audience for me. Um, and so it helps increase sales, far beyond just, it just being on, you know, in, a, in a prime location in the store. Then you have this other thing it does. Oh, they're on Pinterest. I'm going to follow them and build an audience. And that, that gives Nordstrom an ability when the person walks out of the store to have additional interaction and potentially drive them to another channel so that they become a multi-channel consumer and they're buying product potentially online. So in that case, you get the sale and you get the audience, the proprietary audience developed. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, then the other, the other objective is could be building you know, loyalty or further awareness of other products. So those three things, I think, come into play. And I completely get what an overwhelming uh, world this is in marketing right now. We've never been hit with more channels, with uh, more devices, and we as consumers ourselves are trying to figure out how those fit in our lives. But that can't be an excuse to just freeze and go immobile. We have to get out in the places our consumers are interacting, see how we can help them, and then begin prioritizing based on that audit and just start ticking things off. And it is, it is a constant process of optimization. And to the point of my book, get the sale, but work hard to also look at places that you can get the audience. So keeping them engaged is as an audience uh, within a community means that you're going to be serving them up stuff that they find helpful at the end of the day and not giving them or spamming them with just boatloads of content. Absolutely. You know, and that, and, and that is, that's an art in and of itself. Uh, and again, it depends on the channel, right? Uh, email can be very utilitarian. People sign up for coupons. That's what they want to receive. So you give them uh, coupons, you keep them available, and this is if you have set up your program this way, if you've communicated this way to consumers, and that's why they signed up for the program, right? They're getting what they expect, and that will keep them engaged. In a, an environment like Twitter, where it is a virtual waterfall of tweets and people come in and out of that stream, you have to look at engagement a little differently. And I use the example of you know, Lady Gaga doing free Q&As, you know, Twitter chats, every once in a while with her fans unexpectedly. And that keeps those fans tuned to the channel because their friends share it with their friends and she gets a, an audience and, and primes the pump, if you will, 
for potential downstream announcements about new albums, concert tickets, things like that. So you have to remember, you have to give to get. And mm-hmm. that is a critical importance of engagement is it, unless the consumer has opted in specifically to just receive promotional materials, and that is the value exchange. If they're following your brand you know, for other reasons, if they've liked you, if, if um, <coughs> they want to engage with you in a different way, you have to not just be selling. And we've learned this lesson in Facebook. We've learned it in other uh, social channels. If you are always selling, you are not going to have a very engaged social audience. Its brand is entertainment, and that is a great form of engagement in certain social media channels that the interaction keeps your content higher in, in, in the uh, distribution. So I see engagement as a way of getting additional reach uh, to the messages that really matter in social media. On email, it's a way of getting deliverability. And in mobile app, it's a way of getting usage. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, mobile apps, if, you know, it's great to get a download, folks, but we don't do mobile apps for downloads. We do mobile apps for actual interaction and engagement. And so that's where it's critical to make sure that you know, you're not just getting the download. You're also hopefully getting the email opt-in. You're hopefully getting the push messaging uh, capabilities. You might even be getting text so that you can message that individual and pull them back in. So content marketing and, and proprietary audience development are you know, different sides of the same coin around this issue of engagement because you can't, your content can ha- can't have an impact unless it has an audience, and your audience is going to dissipate unless it has really valuable, informative, and or entertaining content with which to engage. And you bring up an interesting point uh, stoking your advocates through their community engagement or through the engagement vis-a-vis these, these various communities will actually help get them actively promoting your brand so that you can go out and get the folks that are simply still seeking the ones that aren't customers and followers of your brand yet. Sure. I, you know, in the book, I actually talk about three audiences. Uh, you've got <clears throat> your uh, seekers, your amplifiers, and your joiners. Mm-hmm. And uh, the seeker is the one who is temporal. They're using different channels to find information or entertainment. We know them as searchers on Google. We know them as just viewers on television or YouTube and listeners on radio or podcasts. What we're trying to do there is convert initial interest or initial awareness into some other further activity. One of those activities could be amplification. And it's important to recognize that influencers are kind of a subset of amplification because amplification can happen again, in a very temporal fashion, right? I can see a funny tweet from a brand and I could retweet it, but again, I might not have ever bought anything from that brand, but they effectively benefited from me being an audience member of their tweet with an audience of my own. And that's the interesting change that has happened with social media is that it used to be that as, as individuals, the only audiences we had, say, 20 years ago, was a word-of-mouth audience or... Uh, and, you know, the people that we might write a letter to. Now I have lightning-fast audiences on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Pinterest, you know, uh, all of these different channels, YouTube, uh, where I can post and they can immediately see and they can share. And the influencer piece of that becomes more interesting because (laughs) influencers are owning, to get back to your segmentation question, they're owning... Uh, an audience that is highly, highly relevant to your industry, and therefore they could be regular Joes who you almost treat as analysts. 
And in your book, on that note, you talk about taking engaged fans who then become an extension of your customer service department. So you just talked about uh, uh, taking certain individuals or groups uh, and they become extensions as analysts. Uh, but how do you take fans and make an extension of your customer service department? Uh, uh, there's communities of those as well, both that you create maybe on your own property but outside of your property as well. Yeah, I, that's a fascinating phenomenon for me, that you there are brands who have such passionate customers who want to help other customers, and they often will do it and want to do it you know, at no benefit other than an altruistic benefit to themselves. And you see this in Facebook in numerous places where, you know, you build a very good community of fans, and they will often uh, come to your defense. Uh, I liken them to white blood cells when there is perhaps a, a service issue or a, a, a issue in the media. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> that's one reason to build a great fan base on, on Facebook. Uh, is because those folks will rise up if you're under attack and, and the reasons for that attack are, are unfair or untrue. I think there is another angle here uh, relative to you know, that, that kind of customer service where communities come into play. And the reason that you build customer communities is because folks who are very knowledgeable about <clears throat> the product will want to serve and they'll want to answer questions for other folks and in businesses where you have got technical products or you have you know, deep levels of expertise out in your customer base, you know, connecting your customers I think is a highly beneficial thing to do because it not only can save time for your, uh, you know, your customer service reps, but it can also deepen the relationship and create these other strange connections and opportunities where the customers actually start coming up with the ideas. Case in point, <clears throat> GE. So GE leverages uh, Salesforce Chatter. They open up their community not just to their partners but also their customers around their giant airline engines that they build. So we're talking mm -hmm. very large, intricate product, lots of moving pieces. And the engine actually will tweet out performance metrics to the community, uh, this community that, again, consists of GE partners and the customer so that the engineers can be deciphering this data in real time and collaborate with each other to improve performance, address any issues before they become problems, or actually come up with ideas for new products, applications, or improvements to existing products. Mm -hmm. That's game-changing. And that, that is an audience, right? It, it's, it's, this, it, it's an audience that's hidden to me as a guy who flies around the globe all the time and is flying on planes that use GE engines, but boy, am I glad to see that that kind of collaboration is now taking place because Highly segmented, it, but very relevant. Yeah, it, it, it gets the right people are talking behind the scenes in ways they simply couldn't before. And that, that is going to transform a lot of industries, the fact that there will be more robust partnership and collaboration uh, in and outside of the organization. And, you know, to... To address then maybe one part of this issue that I think remains important is, well, where, where does the customer service rep come in all of this, right? Where, where does that human being who can assist you uh, when you have a problem fit into the equation? I think they're going to consistently be empowered with new tools 
and they become potentially one of the best cogs in your marketing machine, not just your service, service machine. I, was, I forget who I heard speaking this week, and they, and they talked about kind of the virtuous loop that marketing is service and service is marketing, and marketing is service and service is marketing. If mm-hmm. you look at your, your customer service rep, and for the last how many years it's been about efficiency, how do we spend less on customer service? And there was offshoring, and that didn't always satisfy the customer, and so now you have some of that coming back. We look to use technology to improve it. Again, to use Activision as an example, they've leveraged the service cloud to uh, essentially flip-flop the number of calls they have. So they used to have about 80% calls on a game when there were issues and 20% people using electronic means. Now because they've built service components into the game, the gamers can chat or text directly with the service reps, and now 80% of the service interactions are happening in-game or via digital channels that the gamers use, and only 20% are taking up the call. So they've had a, they've had a nice cost reduction uh, there. But that means mm-hmm. now you've got these call center reps, you've got customer service reps who can become deeper experts, and they can become more empowered by technology to troubleshoot things and be a part of that marketing exchange. So, hey, if, if we've served you well, they'll just take the survey, oh, I noticed you're not an email subscriber. Did you know we get this? Or, you know, we'll give you this for signing up. Or have you engaged with us through this channel because it could be beneficial for you in the future if you have this issue. You know, they can be community builders. They can get those people into the communities that serve their needs should they have problems. So it's an exciting time. That the, the lines between service and marketing are blurring, and uh, that goes to the whole, the whole notion of audience as well. Um, so I'm very intrigued to see how that plays out. Well, you bring up an interesting point uh, in terms of how you engage with your, your customers. One, you want to identify the ones, as you talk about in your book, audience, uh, the ones that need red velvet, uh, you know, red, red velvet approach, if you may. Uh, but you also have the issue that most uh, of your customers are pushed to a call center IVR type environment, which is not a good experience. Yeah, so it, it's funny. The, the red velvet touch idea that I talk about in the book, it's in, it's in chapter 24, was an outgrowth of this mantra, this call to arms that we came up with at Exact Target years ago called um, uh, Subscribers Rule. It was really this mm-hmm. manifesto that got us focused in our early days when we were simply just an email service provider on the fact that the subscriber sits at the center of our world, which is to say the customer sits at the center of our world. At the time, a lot of ESPs were you know, focused on their direct customer, and they were doing things that frankly were wrong-headed for the long haul, uh, you know, in terms of harvesting email addresses and doing things that weren't focused on permission. And so what we wanted to do was craft uh, a manifesto that would allow folks to focus on the ultimate customer because if we did right by the subscriber, the customer, we would do right by our customer who was trying to serve their mm-hmm. subscriber. So it's, again, kind of this interesting loop. And out of that was you know, there were three simple kind of statement, serve, honor, and deliver. You serve individuals because that's the, that's the ultimate test of success is the individual happy. You honor their unique preferences because now we have technology at scale and we can, to get back to the segmentation, we can actually deliver them content that knows who they are and treats them in, in that unique fashion. 
and then deliver them timely, relevant content that improves their lives. So, you know, be timely. You know, be as real-time as you possibly can. Be relevant. Again, put the data to work so that it is relevant to the individual in the moment. And then also seek to improve their lives, right? We're, that, that sounds maybe a little touchy-feely, maybe a little too aspirational for marketing, but ultimately that's what marketing should be about in its best self is mm-hmm. I want to get my products and services to the people who need them most. And that's my job. How do I get them? Because I, we don't just build products uh, to build products. We build them to sell. And so how do I get them to those people? And so Serve, Honor, and Deliver became this, this, this core of subscribers rule. And as I was writing the book, I realized, wow, it's actually kind of grown. And you have that Serve, Honor, and Deliver, but you also have the ability uh, to surprise and delight. That's what social media and mobility have really brought into the mix. And so surprise is this notion of I have the ability to actually interact with you at an individual level, but I can, I can actually let you behind the red, red, red velvet rope, which was you know, mm-hmm. the whole red velvet concept ties into this because I had these red vel- – in the book I talk about these uh, these metaphorical red velvet things, right, that represent each of them. Like, you know, service is the red velvet glove and honor is the red velvet throne. Well, with, with surprise, it's the red velvet rope. When you see a red velvet rope, there's an us and them, right? You know, there, there must be wonderful things happening behind that red velvet rope. I want to get back there. I want to get into the VIP room. We as brands now have this unprecedented ability to kind of pull the red velvet rope away and let our customers in, as we were just talking about in, in, in the GE example, into these communities that can influence the product like never before. Mm-hmm. And so that surprise mm-hmm. of saying, oh my God, they're listening to me. Oh my gosh, they're giving me access. Oh my gosh, I'm partnering with them. That's a really exciting piece of it. And then the delight yep. of these uh, is really you know, just these surprising little moments of delight that you can give. And I, it, it's represented by the red velvet cupcake, right? If you show up at work and there's a red velvet cupcake at your desk, and you did not expect it, that's going to be a better day than one without a red velvet cupcake. So what, is, you know, what are the ways that you can delight your customers that are over and above what your product and your service are? How yeah. do you uh, do that? And, and uh, one of our clients, uh, Kimpton Hotels, has this program called Kimpton Karma. And what they discovered was that their clients actually, when they, when they, they told them, put free nights at the hotel very near the bottom of the types of perks that they would want. They actually much preferred the nightly wine tastings or the fact that they could bring their dog or the fact that Kimpton gave these little moments of what they call Kimpton karma. Uh, Like if you brought your dog, your dog was getting a little treat. Um, You Mm -hmm. might show up in your room and you might have a free spa treatment. And so they're using technology to manage that process and looking to deliver more of those little moments of delight to customers. And what they've discovered is that deepens the loyalty far better for them than just free nights on points. Yeah. And, and how do you, when you – go ahead. Yeah, sorry. go ahead. Go ahead. Please. No, I was just going to say, how do you take that and then turn that uh, into an engagement strategy on the website? Sure. So if you look at you know, serve, honor, and deliver, that's really about matter, you know, treating the folks as individuals using data uh, and content to – to deliver that relevant, timely experience in the moment. So making sure you know, that you've got real-time inventory so you're not going to frustrate people that things aren't in stock. There's going to be clarity there. To your earlier point, those moments, of, uh, moments that matter do matter. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no Everybody's in their business is different. You just got to identify them and prioritize them and start knocking them off. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for your time today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Looking forward to your next book. <laughs>